0: This is C-SPAN's Afterwards Podcast, but first a quick note from Book TV on their newest podcast.
1: Well, C-SPAN's newest podcast is called About Books, and it's an insider's look at the book publishing business. We'll also look at some of the thousands of nonfiction books published every year. So join me, Peter Slent. I've been the executive producer of C-SPAN's Book TV for 15 years. We'll talk with publishing industry experts, give you a behind-the-scenes look at the publishing world, and each episode will also cover the week's bestsellers, trends, and latest book reviews. About Books is available as a podcast on Thursdays. Find it on the new C-SPAN Now app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: In his new book, Woke Inc., Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. Entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy argues that corporate America is signing on to woke culture only to increase profits.
2: A big part of what I take aim at in the book isn't just the woke ideology in and of its own right, but its merger with capitalism, which actually taints both the progressive values that corporations are are asked to be stewards of, as well as tainting corporate purpose in and of its own right as well.
0: He's interviewed by Greg Mankiw, former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisers during the George W. Bush administration and a Harvard University economics professor. More in a moment.
1: So Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, welcome. It's a delight to be here uh, to to chat with you. Um, Congratulations on the book. I know how much work it is to write a book, so congratulations on finishing. And also congratulations on its great success. I've been watching its sales ranking on Amazon. And obviously, you've hit a chord because a lot of people are buying it. And that's great because it is a a great book, very readable, very interesting, very provocative, um, and on a very very important topic. So I'm delighted uh, to be here to chat with you. Uh, but you. before we get to the book, before we get to the book, um, I would like you to tell us a little bit about your biography, because I think your biography shapes the things you're writing in this book. And you have a very interesting biography and one that, honestly, I didn't know until I first met you, I guess, about a year ago or so. Um, so why don't you t- t- tell us a little bit about, about
2: Vivek. Yeah, no, thanks. I appreciate that. So I was born and raised in Ohio, which is actually where I also live today. And uh, my parents were immigrants from India. My dad came over in the late 70s, my mom in the early 80s. It's funny, side side story. Uh, We used to ask my dad, why did you come halfway across the world to Cincinnati, Ohio, of all places? And he said that actually his sister had come over from India to Fort Wayne, Indiana, which of course then prompted us to ask him why she came halfway across the world to Fort Wayne, Indiana. And the joke we tell in our family is it's the only US state with the word India contained in the name of the state. So, so anyway, that's the joke we tell. But, uh, but we, we were born and raised in, in Ohio. Did they, my parents didn't come from much money, but they did have an education and that's one of the valuable things they gave us. I went to public schools through eighth grade, went to a private Catholic high school, even though I'm not Catholic, graduated in 2003. 9-11 took place when I was in high school. It's something that really shaped my own wor- worldview as a, as a young American. I then went to Harvard. We didn't overlap there, but I did take uh, the class that I believe you teach now, uh, Economics 10, among others, though I was a biology major. I studied molecular biology. I was mostly a nerdy science guy through college. And then when I graduated, I actually got into the world of biotech investing in the fall of 2007, just before the 2008 financial crisis, which I will say also dramatically shaped my views of not only capitalism, but the merger of capitalism and politics, one of the core themes in the book. Anyway, I did that for several years. I did it for seven years. Three years in, I actually told my bosses that I was going to leave and go to Yale Law School because I had this itch at the intersection of law and political philosophy that I had never fully scratched. Turns out that that actually got me some career mobility. Instead, they said you could manage a portfolio for us. Go do it from Yale. So that's what I did. And I spent three years there, met my wife, probably the most productive thing that came out of it. She was my next door neighbor in med school. She was, but. Anyway, when I graduated, I came back to my job as an investor and realized that I was much more interested in getting hands-on involved in addressing some of the inefficiencies in pharma that I couldn't address as a bystander, as an investor. So I left my job as an investor this time for real and started a biotech company called Royvent, which I built from 2014 to 2021. Uh, I served for seven years as the company's CEO. I stepped down this January To give myself the latitude to to really speak freely in in an uninhibited way in not only rolling out this book, but addressing some of the contentious issues that I'm now speaking openly about as a citizen. And suffice to say that, that having built a company was a challenge, one of the most, probably the most gratifying thing I've done in my professional career. But I did step down because I felt that I, A, needed to speak freely in a way that didn't harm the company, but B, also needed to exercise some of my own civic duty in putting a spotlight on what I have seen behind closed doors in elite America over the last 15 years. I wasn't born into elite America, but I have lived it for the last decade and a half. And some of the things that I learned, I think were experiences and insights and perspectives that I felt I needed to share to be able to shape the conversation about where we go as a people from here. And I think that's what's at stake at the heart of this discussion about the relationship between capitalism and democracy.
1: You did a great job in the book, especially in the the last chapter, I should say, summarizing the the theme which as I, I take it is that when capitalism and democracy are trying to mix themselves up too much both sacrifice both suffer for it and that they, exactly. they each have a role in our society but you have to be very clear what each of those two pillars are and what and what, what and what, what 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 they can do so um so you, you you experienced this as a ceo but you experienced it even before you were you were running a major company even as a um even as a, a student. So you had this great story earlier on in the book about your, your your summer at Goldman Sachs. You wanna tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, well, look, uh, Goldman Sachs is, is one of the archetypes that I keep coming back to in my book of the some of the themes that I talk about, about the relationship between the private sector and government, between capitalism and democracy. I think Goldman Sachs, for better or worse, in my opinion, for worse, typifies that relationship. Well, one thing I should say to the audience, by the way, Goldman Sachs is, it, for those who don't know, it. it was traditionally an investment bank
1: now a commercial bank but it's one of the financial institutions that's considered really elite so among it is the elite. top harvard students like you were yeah. getting a job at Goldman sachs is that's
2: that's like the pinnacle that's really what you aim for for better or worse i'm not sure it's always for yeah better. there's things i would like to have been better at it turns out one of the things i've been really good at is getting myself into into protected corridors of elite america i've done that over the last 15 years and there are better skills one can have but it turns out that was a skill that either on accident or on purpose i happen to have, have uh, repeatedly practiced. I did that in t- the summer of 2006, included, when I was a student at Harvard and took an internship at Goldman Sachs. And you know, there was something I learned that summer, but it wasn't the thing that I expected to learn. I thought I would learn about evaluating and valuing companies. The disappointing part about the summer is I didn't learn very much about that. However, I did learn a lot about how to aggregate power, how to aggregate power in a way that wasn't actually uh appearing to smack of the the aggregation of power so so one of the ways to do it was goldman sachs actually had a hallmark event that summer which was service day you go to harlem and you plant trees the thing i noticed is when we showed up in harlem nobody was really interested in planting trees everyone showed up except for the boss who, who actually was nowhere to be found but nobody was really planting trees they were telling investment war stories they were catching up on office gossip nobody was really planting trees the thing we went to harlem to do Then, of course, the boss shows up an hour late, the managing director, the guy at the top of the food chain, who, by the way, Goldman Sachs, a little-known secret, they wear slim fit suits, tailored shirts, but they don't wear Rolexes. They wear these cheap black, visibly cheap black rubber wrist strap digital watches as a show of sort of false humility. But anyway, shows up not only with that watch, but with the slim fit suit and Gucci boots and says, hey, guys, look, I'm going to take some pictures and get out of here. That's exactly what we did. We all went to a bar nearby and started drinking. And so I asked one of the older associates nearby, I said, Look, if we wanted to call it a social day, we should have just called it that rather than calling it service day. And his response stuck with me. He said, Have you ever heard of the golden rule? I said, Of course I had. I told you I've been to a Catholic high school. I said, It's you treat others like you want to be treated. And he said, No. The golden rule is this: he who has the gold makes the rules. And that stuck with me. I called it the Goldman rule. And it turned out I did learn something valuable that summer after all. And it is the Goldman rule that I saw on display 10 years later when Goldman Sachs declares from the mountaintops of Davos, where else, that they would not take a company public in the United States if its board was, for example, insufficiently diverse. And they didn't mean ideological diversity. They meant racial and gender diversity. And to me, it was that abuse of market power to be able to exercise power in the marketplace of ideas, to decide questions that I felt needed to be decided in our democracy at large, that was actually the greatest form of corporate overreach of all. That's actually the big part of why I wrote the book.
1: Another story you, you tell towards the beginning of the book, which is sort of similar, is about Fearless Girl. It was this famous sort of statue that was put in front of the, the Wall Street Bulls. So can you tell us about,
2: about Fearless yeah, Girl? So Fearless Girl was supposed to be an icon of feminism. So she, capital S-H-E, makes a difference, is what it says at the base of the statue. She's supposed to stare down the iconic Wall Street bull, the male power that that stood for. Well, it turns out that was commissioned by State Street Global Advisors, as you probably well know, an asset management firm. And it turns out that S-H-E stands not just for she, but it also is the ticker of the exchange-traded fund that was the so-called something like a diversity index, a well-selected cabal of stocks that embodied some of these progressive social values. And of course, they charge a fee in the process. It was even better than that. They built the statue around the time they were facing a lawsuit from their female employees at the firm who alleged that they didn't get paid enough as much as their male counterparts. So of course, when accused by female employees of not paying them enough and not paying them as much as their male counterparts, the firm did exactly what you'd expect them to do. They built a statue for the women. And even better, and you can't make this stuff up, The the creator of the statue, Kristen invisible created a few more copies of the statue because she was a feminist and she was proud of what she'd created. State Street sued her for creating unauthorized reproductions of the statue that they had commissioned. So so it comes full circle. It's like the magic trick I tell about in the book you pretend like you care about something other than profit and power precisely to gain more of each. Well, a good magic trick isn't just about making the money disappear, you have to bring the money back. That's why they sued Kristen Visible. It's a joke that I tell in the book. But Greg, you, you might remember this, actually. Shortly after we met, you introduced me to, to a professor at Harvard Law School who had taken an interest in some of these issues. And he subsequently invited me to his class to actually give, give an early draft of the book, or at least a chapter of the book, as a workshop that we worked out with his corporate law class. And one of the things that I did, that, that happened to be the chapter that contained the fearless girl story. And there was a girl in the class who, I, I still remember this, she raised her hand at the end. And she said, you know what? I hear the story you've told. But Fearless Girl still inspired me. And nobody can take that away. Even State Street can't take that away. And that actually is something that took me deeper into my exploration of the book. Because in an early draft. And God knows that early draft looks nothing like the final book because I was able to go a lot deeper in the subsequent four or five months. And I think that there's something to be said for really exploring the way in which maybe wokeness can stand on its own two feet when it isn't intermingled with capitalism. A big part of what I take aim at in the book isn't just the woke ideology in and of its own right, but its merger with capitalism, which actually taints both the progressive values that corporations are, at, are asked to be stewards of, as well as tainting corporate purpose in and of its own right as well. And so that's actually what the heart of the book is about, more so than criticizing one end of the political spectrum or the other.
1: I mean, in the case of the statue, one suspects that the artists may have had different motivations in State Street.
2: And exactly, exactly. being motivated by the artist's Exactly. And it embodies this uncomfortable marriage between the progressive left and big business in this country. It is an arranged marriage. It is not a marriage of love, though. I think of it more like mutual prostitution, where each side gets something out of the trade, out of the transaction. The artist got some money out of it. State Street got cover for their lawsuit that they were facing from their female employees. The same thing is happening, I think, writ large in the post-2008 era, since Occupy Wall Street, where Effectively, if you're a big bank, Occupy Wall Street is a tough pill to swallow. You could hire an Occupy Wall Street leader to give a lecture at your bank. You would not like what they have to say. Hire Robin DiAngelo and talk about white fragility. That's no problem. And so so what I think you effectively had happen was a generation of big banks got together with a generation of woke millennials. Together, they birthed woke capitalism. And that's what allowed them to put Occupy Wall Street up for adoption. And that trade worked so well that everyone else started replicating it and getting in on the act. I think Silicon Valley does a version of it where they effectively censor or moderate, to use their language, content that the woke movement doesn't want to see online, but they don't do it for free because their unspoken ask is that the new Democratic Party, the new left, looks the other way when it comes to leaving their monopoly power intact. And again, I think that trade is working at, whatever you think of the merits of whether or not their monopoly power is a good thing or a bad thing or is a monopoly or not, it is a trade that's working masterfully for both sides. And I think one of the goals of this book is to shine some sunlight on that reality so that consumers and citizens, et cetera, can at least make their own judgments about whether there's a good thing or a bad thing. People can come to their own conclusions. But step one is seeing the phenomenon itself with clear eyes. That's part of what I tried to do in the book. Now,
1: the, the examples of State Street and, and Goldman that we've been talking about, when well, that has the sense that the companies were deeply cynical. They were sort of using a progressive agenda to, to further their own goals, which weren't political at all, they were perhaps just generating more profit. Um, but what about stakeholder capitalism more generally? Can can somebody, can a CEO or a board, uncynically uh, embrace stakeholder capitalism? Does it make sense for a CEO to say, "Look, yeah, we, we, uh, my my shareholders have other goals other than maximizing profit." So I'm going to, as CEO, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help pursue those goals, whether it's
2: combating climate change, yeah. increasing diversity, or whatever. So, so I'm going to take this as an opportunity to, to probably say some things that you already well appreciate, but I think are worth unpacking in the discussion anyway, which is to talk about a few different kinds of so-called woke capitalism or stakeholder capitalism. It's not one thing. It's at least three different things, right? So, so first, you have the problem of the executive who, who ultimately, if you think it's a problem, the phenomenon of the executive who decides- that he only lives once, and he's going to use his position as CEO to advance his conception of the social good, even if that means using some of his shareholders' resources as part of his platform to do it. There, on that telling of it, the shareholders are the victims, and allegedly, for people who don't like this kind of behavior, the CEO may be breaching his fiduciary duty to those shareholders by misusing their resources. You know, so Let's say a CEO makes a multimillion-dollar donation to his high school. Or to his temple where he worships. I think most people would agree that that was something that would be objectionable as a breach of fiduciary duty, a breach of being a custodian of those shareholders' resources. Now, I think part of what you can debate is if that same CEO writes a check to a different temple, call it Black Lives Matter, does that actually, why, why is that, why should that be treated any differently? That's something we can come back to, but that's the executive as culprit. I think the second is actually different is actually the shareholder isn't the victim, but might be the perpetrator where you actually have a shareholder that says, actually, you executive, you CEO, you work for us. And we demand that you actually advance these particular social values or else you're actually breaching your duty to us, the boss, the shareholders. That's, I think, what BlackRock tries to pull off as in its capacity as a shareholder, where they say they have a Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, the SASB, that says that if a company doesn't meet its standards, they will disinvest from that company or divest from that company. Now, double click on that. I think you actually have a problem of the woke executive at BlackRock too. The first phenomenon where, actually it's not BlackRock as an investor. there's about a million or more people who are investors in, who have their money with BlackRock it is their CEO and their own managerial class that is actually the woke executive all over again. But put that asterisk to one side, you have a number of investors who are certainly saying that you as the executives have to advance these values that we as the investors want to see you push. Both of those, though, Gregor, are different from the third phenomenon of what I call woke consumerism, which is the consumers themselves, many of them generally progressive consumers, demand that the CEOs of the companies that they buy their products from actually embody the values that match their own values as consumers. And there. I think you could argue that's just capitalism working. What I offer in the book is really more cultural commentary to say that that is actually just a symptom of a deeper cultural malaise, where we in our culture, as consumers, more importantly as citizens, are hungry for a cause and hungry for a sense of purpose but we have resorted to superficial means like mixing morality with commercialism to satisfy a moral hunger that actually demands more substantial fare. So that's one axis along. You can cut three types of woke capitalism, the executive, the investors, or the consumers. There's a different axis too, and you touched on this as well. Those who pursue it inauthentically, I think Goldman Sachs and State Street, those types of examples, generally financial services firms more broadly fall into that category. I think that's the majority of cases. That's a big part of what I lay out in the book. But I think there's a decided minority of cases in which actually you have corporations and their executives and their boards and their investors sometimes who are pursuing it authentically, who actually believe in the values that they're they're ultimately using their corporate platform to push. And here's a place where I actually changed my mind through the course of writing the book. I began taking aim at the cynical kind, at the scammy kind of woke capitalism. By the end of the book, I was actually more convinced that the bigger threat to democracy was actually the authentic kind where you actually have somebody who is purposefully using their corporate platform as a way of sidestepping public debate and using force, economic force, but force nonetheless, to settle the questions that ought to be settled through free speech and open debate in a political democracy in the, in the public square where everyone's voice and everyone's vote is weighted equally, unadjusted by the number of dollars they control in the market. And to me, that was actually the biggest threat of all. And one of my big realizations through the course of writing the book
1: it's got into the corporations through the employees, not only through the consumers demanding it, but the employees of the of the firm demanding. And you you had sort of an interesting story when you were CEO um, of what happened in the af- in the aftermath of
2: the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. Um, can you tell us that about that? About that story? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, you know, I think I think what I learned was my experience as CEO was actually nearly identical to that of many other CEOs who were in similar positions. So in the wake of George Floyd's tragic death, and it was a tragic death, and it was really, at this point, we can say decidedly a murder. There were protests across the country. There was a national reckoning about race relations in our country, about the use of police force. But there was also a demand that companies somehow play a role in rectifying that supposed problem. And I had an issue with that for all the reasons I lay out in the book. I I certainly take issue with the blanket claim of systemic racism as a term without actually defining more specifically what that means. That's on the content of of the demand that was being made. But I even had a more principled issue with it, which is that I did not think corporations should be using their market power to substitute for the free speech and open debate that ought to be taking place, as I said earlier, in the public square, in our democracy. Well, it turns out a lot of my employees didn't feel the same way. and And I respect their perspective, where they said that, look, we came to work at a place that did more than just pursue profit nakedly, we were in the business of developing medicines, medicines for patients who needed them. There was, in the eyes of many people who worked for us, including myself, arguably very few callings higher than that. But in the eyes of especially many younger employees, that also meant that there was a new expectation that the business play a role, that business in our country broadly play a role in rectifying other kinds of social injustice as well. And so that was something that, that actually led to a deep level of reflection and introspection for me Wondering not only w- whether I was going to make the right counterarguments in return, but was I wrong and actually, especially not only with my own employees, but some of my investors actually and even board members felt the same way or raised similar questions it really made me question whether I was really misguided in being a slave of some intellectual slave of some philosophy that I had learned in places like economics classes at Harvard. And whether I was actually in the wrong in, in failing to think about the u- unique challenges of modernity, where actually, if government was failing, maybe corporations did need to step up and address social issues that they weren't addressing. I came out on the other side of it, I will say, with you know, a stronger conviction in my own position of why it was important for the sake of democracy and capitalism to separate each from the other. But I think it was on the other side of a journey that I'm really grateful for and grateful to my own employees for, for being able to take me through a personal journey of, of deconstructing that view first before constructing it and building it up with, you know, I think, I think greater and more solid foundation on the other side of having gone through that journey.
1: Now, you eventually stepped down from, being, yeah. you know, in part to write this book. Um, well, if you had stayed and there, there were these continuing pressures coming from your board, from your employees, maybe from customers, who knows, how do you think you would have responded?
2: Well, it's, it's funny. I, I went through that journey of introspection, and one of the places that ended was you know, about seven months later when I realized that actually my own philosophy had taken me full circle. Now, to be clear, unlike Larry Fink or, or sort of CEOs who have a different worldview, who are perfectly comfortable using their seat of corporate power to foist their social views onto others, I never did that. At least I believe I never did it during my time as CEO of, of a company. However, I had begun speaking out, regularly writing in the Wall Street Journal, regularly you know, appearing even on, on cable television, and other media, expressing my own views on actually the very topic of, of cap, well, capitalism, the spread of, of critical theory in academia, the spread of ideas spawned by critical theory in the corporate sector and other spheres of American life. These are contentious topics. And, and I actually had to take a step back and actually, in some ways, practice what I preached, walk the walk in recognizing that as a CEO, while I did my best to avoid using the corporate platform as a way of foisting my views on others, the nature of the topics I was talking about were such that that was impossible to do perfectly in practice. And so in order to actually protect the company from my own perspectives and also to protect my own ability to speak freely without having to think in the back of my head about what the what the stewardship role is that I was playing for the company while I was speaking as a citizen, I thought the best thing to do was to separate my role as a CEO from my role as a citizen. I had been a CEO for seven years and you know, if I'm being perfectly candid, I wouldn't have been free to write everything that I was writing in the book if I had to also run it through the lens of deciding what impact that was going to have on, on you know, being extrapolated to be the business's voice on these issues too. So I separated myself from my voice from that of the company. I stepped down as CEO, I appointed a new the board, of which I'm a member, elevated a new person to the role of CEO. And that really allowed me to speak more freely, not as a CEO, but as an ordinary citizen. And, and I hope that everyone would find a bit of what I had to say worthwhile.
1: Like well, and I kind of wondered if you'd continued on whether you would have, what we would have felt forced to do. I mean, to get back to the cynical kind of the cynical kind of um, woke capitalism, if you're, if, you're a, if you're a fiduciary and your job is to maximize your shareholder value, in this era where there's this strange alliance between the progressive left and, and corporations, maybe the way to maximize shareholder value is to feign the sort of woke capitalism. Maybe what Goldman Sachs and State Street were doing was, in fact, pursuing their fiduciary obligation shareholders.
2: It, it's, possible. it's possible. And it's possible. And, and I openly explore that possibility in the book. That's what i talked about the third phenomenon of woke consumerism i think that is symptomatic of a deeper cultural malaise in our country a hunger for a cause a moral vacuum that we need to fill with more substantial fare than wokeism or with the merger of 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 progressive values and consumerism but it may be right that narrowly if you're to take that as given maybe companies are doing the right thing there's also an alternative school of thought which you know in certain sectors could also be true that actually this is a temporary market inefficiency and there's a great opportunity in the other direction where you have half the country that is actually quietly frustrated with Nike signaling its virtue and its alignment with Black Lives Matter in the way that it is, when there isn't a good sneaker alternative, that actually could be an opportunity for somebody to create an alternative, a right-wing alternative version, for example, to the left-wing version that is ultimately being pushed through the consumer sector today. That's kind of what you see with black rifle coffee, for example, as best I can tell, it's Starbucks for Republicans. I have an issue with that though. My main issue with it is, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, If this were Shark Tank and I was betting on it and there was a competent entrepreneur, I actually think in many cases there is an opportunity to be able to use a different set of values, not progressive values, but maybe more conventionally conservative values and commingle that with the pursuit of profit in a way that appeals to a different kind of hunger for a cause. I don't think that's good for us as a people or as a country, though, because the private sector, our economy, our sports stadiums, used to be places that brought people together, irrespective of whether they were Black or white, irrespective of whether they were Democrat or Republican. But once we lose them in a divided polity like ours, in our democracy, when it's divided, we actually lose the possibility of solidarity itself when our economy and our companies and our sports become politicized as they have. And I worry that if we lose those eight political sanctuaries that used to bring us together across our divisions, we may be closer to a trajectory towards civil war than one we are towards achieving solidarity in our own right. And I think once we have two economies, a Republican baseball and a Democratic baseball, or, or a Republican coffee and a Democratic coffee, that may be the beginning of the end of the American experiment as we know it, or at least the version of the American experiment that you and I probably grew up idealizing, acknowledging the individualism and the American dream that we could each pursue in the economy, but against a backdrop of democratic solidarity that still bound us together as citizens. I think that if that fractious polity now invades the sphere of of the economy that actually helps people bring people together, actually talk about it in the early part of the book, how the spread of capitalism helped break down the caste system, a social structure in India. Capitalism has the ability to bring people together across otherwise politically or even culturally divided categories. Once we lose that, but actually make capitalism itself a source of further division, I worry that's the beginning of the end. And I think that may be where we're naturally heading absent some kind of serious cultural intervention. And I hope that the book serves as one of those forms of cultural intervention where I offer a different vision of how we could go forward.
1: You mentioned a moment ago some skepticism you have about the idea of systemic racism. Um, yeah, I, I, I was. I want to explore that a little bit, because you you mentioned it in an offhand way in the book, but don't really go into a lot of depth about it. It's certainly clearly the case that the legacy of slavery is, is it was horrific, um, and that African-Americans today on average, experience worse economic outcomes and have more difficulty in life, I think, than other uh, racial and ethnic groups. To what extent is that a problem in your eyes? And it, 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 to what extent do corporations have a responsibility for thinking about that? And, to what extent, and if, if not the corporations, what other institutions do
2: you think should be stepping up and, and what should they be doing? Yeah, so, so I have a few issues with the modern dogma of systemic racism. One of them is actually a a claim of descriptive clarity. It is unclear to me what the term even means. Racism definitely means racism means something to me. It is taking action on the basis of some type of pernicious prejudice. That's racism. I understand what that is. I think it's wrong. I think it exists, and I think we should we should combat it. I think it exists in a much smaller scale today than it has in prior eras in American history. I think we have made steady progress over the decades to reduce the problem that racism represents. I think racism represented a pressing problem in America decades ago. I don't think it represents a pressing problem in the same way that it did 60 or, or 50 or 60 years ago. I think anybody who claims it does, which is I think a big part of what the progressive left claims, many of the progressive left claim today, I think is disingenuous to say that we are in the same place we were in the Jim Crow era in the 1960s or 70s, or where we were, excuse me, in, in the 1960s in and 70s, or in the Jim Crow era, or in the era of the 1860s or 1850s when we had slavery, I think is is, is, is a pretty preposterous claim. So first of all, I think that systemic racism is, in, is a sloppy way Of actually defining what the original, what the problem itself is. I understand what racism is. I don't believe the narrative of systemic racism has been appropriately fleshed out to even be defined as a phenomenon. I have a different problem with it too. That the same force that gives us the verbiage of systemic racism also gives us a set of solutions that demand fighting racism with more racism, and I personally am of the John Roberts School of Thought where the best way to end discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race, and yet Ibram Kendi, you know, if you take it from me, I mean take it from the best and, and most articulate proponents of the alternative view, Ibram Kendi, I think in your direct quote from his book How to Be an Anti-Racist*, is the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination, The remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. Agree or not, that's what he said. I disagree. And I think that's a big part of my view that the dogma of systemic racism effectively is commingled with a set of solutions that demand further racializing solutions, which I think are actually likely to be counterproductive in every direction, including including in the direction of actually serving poorly the, the Black community and some Brown communities that I think are actually supposed to have been helped by this dogma but the third thing that i that i that i really reject is the idea that we should actually bring a prism of race to evaluating struggles that could equally or even more powerfully be evaluated through the lens of class instead according to the theory of intersectionality one of the one of the sort of intellectual underpinnings of woke dogma there are certain ways in which a black woman like oprah will always be disempowered relative to A person who might live 10 miles down the street from me here in ohio who might live in the opioid opioid epidemic rust belt version of white america that involves a lot of poor people who may be having struggles of their own but may not be black or may not be a woman and i reject the idea that oprah winfrey and her struggle as a black woman ought ought to have any more of our concern than somebody who might be a poor white man in the opioid rust belt And i think that 90% 90% of what both sides could actually agree on is that people who are economically disempowered lack access to a fair education, lack access to a good educational system, lack access to capital, lack access to participate as an equal participant in the economy. That's actually a more universalist message for the left, I think, to embrace, that I think could be more about an agenda that lifts everyone up from disempowerment that everyone shares in, in the same way. And I think that part of the issue with the new woke movement is actually obfuscates the kinds of solutions that could economically empower everyone by instead obsessing over genetically inherited characteristics like race, gender, sexual orientation, which I think is what the woke movement is focused on today. So I I think that the narrative of systemic racism is sloppy. It is lazy term. And I think we ought to define exactly what we mean for inequities that we do need to address, but they may be inequities that Affect people even along axes that have nothing to do with race. Well, it sounds like if you were talking
1: not to some mere Harvard professor but the Harvard president, you might suggest rethinking, say, affirmative action. I would. I would. I, I think. So that, what, 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 what would you recommend to the to the university
2: president? Yeah. So, um, so, so I, want, I, want, I want to I want to I want to give you my actual nuanced position. I'm I'm generally against affirmative action. Okay. Uh, I think affirmative action is a disservice to the people who it's supposed to help, in part because for the simple reason where when you now look at a Black pilot in the cockpit of United Airlines, once they have a quota system that was predicated on getting 50% women or pilots, women or people of color as pilots in the cockpit, and had to get rid of the tests for pilot competence that they previously used, there is no way that any human being can be faulted for at least having a moment or an instinct of questioning whether a female pilot or a non-white pilot in the cockpit, would have passed those same tests. Because United Airlines told us that they had to get rid of the tests in order to create this new quota system. And I think that fosters an unfair new brand of judgment that no black pilot or no female pilot deserves. And I think that that is something that is unjust, not only to the white pilots who are excluded, though that might be one strain of injustice we care about, but an injustice to the very people who may have earned their position but now can't be distinguished from those who didn't. I think, that, and I think that that actually creates a new wave of racism on its own, reinforcing the idea that minorities of certain racial categories could not excel but for elite intervention. This new idea that is getting some popularity, I'm sorry to say, that math is racist, the discipline of math, the idea that 2 plus 2 equals 4, that discipline that that is racist because of the inequitable outcomes in in mathematical achievement, I think is itself a racist idea. And I think that one of the things that we risk doing is right when racism has actually reached an all-time low in the United States, the final burning embers, we're actually throwing kerosene on it and turning that into a new conflagration of its own. So that's part of an issue that I have with it. Now, as it pertains to Harvard, since you asked me a really precise question, look, I actually think there's something to be said in a liberal arts university to create the conditions for students to have an opportunity to interact with people of every stripe and banner, some from legacy students who, who came from, I wasn't, I wasn't in this class myself, but I was exposed to kids who did come from multi-generational Harvard families Billionaire families in New York City or whatever that I as a kid who grew up as a first-generation kid Indian immigrants who came to this country with no money in Ohio would never have interacted with. And in some ways was actually able to benefit from because it was a totally different culture, just as much as I was able to interact with black kids from the inner city who grew up in a very different kind of challenge circumstance than I did. And I think that I benefited as a student from all of those things and, and Harvard only gives about 2000 seats a year, give or take to a class. You know there's probably about five times as many students who could have been just as well qualified to attend there so. The ability to use some idea of composing a truly diverse class on the basis of diversity of experiences is something that I really, uh, that, that I'm really quite sympathetic to. But what I would say is the best way to screen for diversity of experience is actually to screen candidates for the diversity of their experiences. The best way to screen for diversity of thought is to screen candidates for the diversity of their thoughts. And I think the idea of using race or gender as a proxy for the diversity of one's thoughts, I think actually commits the very transgression that racism was was committing in the first place, which is to conflate the content of someone's thoughts with the color of their skin. I think we should reject it, especially in the corporate sphere. I have a slightly softer corner as it pertains to liberal arts universities that are composing a diverse class. But at the end of the day, I think we would strictly be better off as a society if even there and elsewhere, too, we abandoned the project of affirmative action and instead began an earnest process of screening for diversity of experience and diversity of thought. And I would posit that we would actually end up with classes or corporate workforces that don't look that different than they look today either, but actually with a much more v- vibrant diversity of thought and experience in the process.
1: It changed the just a little bit. Um, you talk about who the beneficiaries of woke capitalism are and one of, you have one chapter, a very interesting chapter on the managerial class as a benefit. So can
2: you tell us who do you, who do you, who do you mean by the managerial class and how do they benefit? Yeah, look, so when I think about companies, you have different classes of groups in a company. You have have the entrepreneurs or the founders, you have the investors that back those founders, you have the employees who follow you know, the founders to be able to work for them. Those may be the three legs of the stool. Turns out as a company grows, there's a fourth leg to the stool, which is hired management. People who are paid by the shareholders, by the board, to run the company that then create bureaucratic layers that intermediate the relationship between those other three stakeholders. The problem with being a member of the managerial class is this. The more people you are accountable to, the less accountable you are to any given one of them. And once you are accountable to everyone, you are accountable to no one. That's actually part of the story I tell in the book, is the managerial class empowers itself by increasing the number of not only shareholders, though that too, but stakeholders to whom they're accountable. And I think that one of the things that allows them to ultimately accrete power is by able to create an infinite set of people they're accountable to. So anytime someone's upset with them, they can merely claim that they're serving somebody else's interests when, in fact, those two parties could never communicate with one another or know the difference in the process. It's one of the agency failures that you discuss in, in probably economics class or in law schools, principal agent problems that arise from hiring somebody to be a steward for the person who's the ultimate owner. But I think this is the, that principal agent problem writ large on steroids when you ultimately say that actually, not only are these CEOs responsible to thousands of different shareholders, but also to people who aren't shareholders at all, who might be so called stakeholders of the business. And here's one of the things that progressives miss, Greg like systemic racism stakeholders or stakeholderism is actually poorly defined anyone could be it could actually be a stakeholder and one of the things i lay out in the book i think this is the first book that lays out the geopolitical implications of the woke capitalist trend once corporations become vectors to advance progressive values they become vehicles to advance any values and nobody has managed to make themselves a quiet stakeholder on the list more effectively than the communist party of china and it's now flexing its muscle as that stakeholder to do some i think dangerous things for not only the future of the united states but even for the future of, of the free world as we know it
1: so okay, tell us hills more about that how, how does yeah. I, I mean, that's what's
2: going to be my next question is exactly about china how does how does china take advantage of this yeah well look, i think they take advantage of it by turning on its on, by turning on the head of philosophy that we spawned of so called democratic capitalism in the 1990s even in the 1980s here in the united states where we began in my opinion on the misguided premise that we could use capitalism as a vector to spread our own political values like democracy we thought we could use our money to get them to be more like us and instead china has turned that on its head they have now used their economic muscle their money to get us to be more like them we sent big macs and happy meals thinking that would spread democracy Instead, they loaded up Nike sneakers and Disney movies and sent them back as Trojan horses that are now undermining American interests on the global stage. And I'll tell you exactly what I mean. When you, have stake, when you meet the demands of stakeholder capitalism, especially the woke breed of stakeholder capitalism or woke capitalism, part of what that demands is that companies criticize injustice, even microaggressions, <laughs> micro in its own terms, aggressions here in the United States like systemic racism or transphobia or misogyny or bigotry or whatever the social cause of the day is. Yet they do not say a peep as they continue to do business in China. Worse still, they even praise the Chinese Communist Party. Just take Disney, which a couple of years ago said it could not shoot a film in the state of Georgia if Georgia had passed the equivalent of an anti-abortion statute, something like a heartbeat bill. Yet they did not say a peep as they filmed Mulan in the Shenzhen province of China last year, where there are over 1 million Uyghurs in concentration camps subject to forced sterilization communist indoctrination, I think in one of the great human rights abuses committed by a major nation since the Third Reich of Germany, Disney doesn't say a thing. In fact, at the end of the film, if you look in the credits of Milan, there's actually one of the things I lay out in the book, in the credits of Milan, they actually quietly thank the CCP. They thank the local authorities in Shenzhen, including some of the very authorities that are responsible for committing those human rights atrocities. And so that two-faced behavior, Greg, isn't just about hypocrisy. It is about eroding the moral standing of the United States by creating a false moral equivalence between what I think of as Chinese nihilism and American idealism. And I think that that erodes our greatest geopolitical asset of all. That is not our nuclear arsenal. It is our moral standing on the global stage. And once we've lost that, I think that we've actually lost our status as, as a great power in, in the what I think is the defining Cold War of the next century. Okay, so suppose somebody's persuaded by all these arguments. What do we do? Who should do what?
1: Do we need new laws? Do we need to elect different leaders? Do we just need to change our cultural
2: mindset? What, what, who's, who's supposed to change their behavior? Well, I think that the biggest solutions are in our culture, and that's where I'm most focused. I do lay out a, a series of legal solutions in the book, policy solutions that I think could make a difference. I think some of the problem traces back to the uneven handed application of public policy itself. For example, what you see in the workforce right now is a lot of people are afraid of expressing their beliefs, not only at work, but even on their own time. The number of people that have been fired over the course of the last couple of years for what they said at home or on social media or, or for wearing a Trump hat to work last year is staggering. And I think that that's actually a go through a list of those examples in the book. And I think that that's a product of the application of policy that's not applied even handedly. Either we get rid of protected classes like race and gender and sexual orientation and national origin and religion altogether, or we apply that even handedly in a way that actually reflects the real form of discrimination that we see in, in the workplace today, which I think is on the basis of political perspective and political speech. So, I say add political speech or political belief as a protected category right there, up to next to race and sex and religion or national origin. And I say if you can't be deplatformed or fired for being Black or gay or Muslim or Jewish or Christian or white or whatever, then you should not be able to be fired or be deplatformed just for being an outspoken conservative or an outspoken liberal for that matter either. Those are the kinds of solutions that I propose in the book. Section 230 reform is also a place where I spend a bit of time, Greg, where you're probably familiar with this, but Section 230 is a statute that among other things, immunizes private companies, uh, internet companies in particular, from tort in states for, uh, for removing content that is otherwise constitutionally protected. And it's actually one of those rare statutes that says otherwise constitutionally protected in the text of the statute itself. Well, my own view is, again, you can't have it both ways. Either you don't get the special form of protection from tort law in the states, or you do get a special federal protection. But if you do, you're bound by the same constraints as the federal government itself including the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. And that's one of the arguments that I make, where actually when companies like Twitter and Facebook and Google, as we now know, are working hand in glove with the government to censor hate speech or misinformation as the government defines it, that's the government doing through the back door what it could not directly do through the front door under the Constitution. And my basic principle is if it is state action in disguise, then the Constitution still applies. So a lot of my policy solutions and legal solutions come down to the simple principle that you can't have it both ways. We have to apply policies, if we're going to apply them at all, in an even-handed way against the backdrop of saying that we may not need those policies in the first place, be it Section 230 or protected classes and civil rights statutes. Everybody else seems to think those things are really necessary, but if they are, then I think we need to modernize them in ways that actually reflect the unintended consequences of of political discrimination that they've created today. All of those are just symptomatic therapies, though. What, What I think we really need in this country is a cultural cure a revival of the shared identities, the shared identity that actually demarcates us as Americans today. I think we've lost that. I think patriotism is on the decline. Faith has nearly disappeared. Hard work is absent. The kinds of things that used to fill the moral void that wokeness fills, those have disappeared. And what we really need to do is is not to cancel wokeness in return or even woke capitalism in return but I think to dilute it to irrelevance by rebuilding a shared identity of what it means to be an American in the year 2021 that makes these other postmodern philosophies look irrelevant by comparison. That's the project that I started doing in the book. It's why I wrote the book and I hope the book has an impact in beginning to move the ball forward towards a, towards a new decade where we may not be celebrating our diversity as much, but we will be celebrating what still binds us together as one people.
1: Yeah, that's certainly what I took away from the book, that you really you're, you're trying to educate the culture which is much harder in some ways than changing laws. You get a few politicians to change the laws, but changing culture is a much more grassroots sort of phenomenon. Um, as, a, as an economist, I'm always looking at what laws, what policy
2: levers we want to switch. And there may be some, but I agree, it's hard. It's, it's hard, um, it's hard to do perfectly, too. There's always unintended consequences of policies. There may be unintended consequences by definition. There's there's unintended consequences of the policies I propose in the book. They're going to be ones that I didn't consider. (laughs) That's the definition of being unintended. But at the end of the day, that's just symptomatic. That's surface level. What we really need is a revival of of shared American identity. And one of the things I think we've lost, Greg, and I haven't I actually haven't talked about this in my other interviews, but I think it's probably one of the most important things to talk about. We've lost a sense of the pursuit of excellence as it as an end in itself. And, And personally, You know, I think when Americans rallied behind the cry to make America great again, I don't think they were rallying behind Donald Trump. I think they were rallying behind the unapologetic pursuit of excellence in and of itself. And I think that's part of what American exceptionalism is all about. And we live in a moment where there is a new anti-excellence culture that lionizes victimhood and, and hides from victory that I actually think one of the defining ideals that's unifying is actually the shared pursuit of excellence itself. And yes, I do see a lot of that in the progressive left. I see a lot of it in minority communities. I see a lot of it amongst white, poor white communities, too, who may be blaming immigrants for their own plight, or amongst second-generation Asian-American kids, kids who are maybe the generation of my kids, rather than me, who now have a practiced nonchalance towards their excellence in math and science with the ennui of mediocrity instead. And I'm worried about that culture of mediocrity affecting our different spheres of of public life. And what I'd like to see is actually a revival of the unbridled pursuit of excellence as a shared American ideal that can actually bring us together and and lift up the people we want to lift up along with it. So that's actually not something that I touch on in great depth in the book, though it's an undercurrent in the book. If I write a sequel, that will probably be what it's all about. But that's part of the cultural revival that I'm talking about here. Well, actually, you mentioned the sequel. I, one of my questions that I was going to ask you is, what's next?
1: You've had an, <laughs> a you, had, you've had an amazing career. At, you know, where you've done work on the Wall Street. You've created a pharma company. You've written, you've written a best-selling book. Um, and you're still a very young man. So uh, I'm, I'm, re- I'm really very curious. Um, what, what's, what, what do you, what's the future hold for Vivek?
2: Yeah, I, I appreciate it. I actually made a commitment to myself earlier this year. I started thinking about that. My mind was, was sort of spinning in a number of different directions this spring and the commitment I made to myself really more than more than anyone else was really to roll this book out and to be able to speak in an uninhibited way about what I actually thought the problem was and and at least the beginning of what I thought the solution to that problem could be and one of the things I quickly started learning as I started thinking about what future possible paths could entail was that you sometimes become a prisoner of your own plans and the things you say have to then become means to an end of achieving whatever end it is you want to go after next, and I found the way for me that was most liberating was actually not to have a defined end, at least for the time being. That's new for me. I, I've you know done the rat race. I've been through you know from probably from high school through the time I started my company was was sort of one big one big sequence. of, so was like it's like you know like the Olympics. You kind of watch the uh, people jumping over over the track and field competition where they're jumping over one hoop after another. that's that's a lot of what my life is adult life has been like certainly and 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 for the better and i enjoyed a lot of it it was you know and it's been successful and i've been blessed with with what that's given me but you know at the end of the day i actually wanted to take uh, a year at least where i was actually not uh, a a prisoner in any way of what came next but figuring out what i wanted to say and say it in an uninhibited way and that's what i believe i've done in the book and and I hope people benefit from it. And you know, probably this time next year, I'll have to figure out what, uh, what plan comes after that.
1: You, you've obviously become personal seen now as a public intellectual, having done all these other great
2: um, accomplishments in your life. Can you see yourself getting involved in the political process? I could, I, you know, it's something that I've considered, people have, people have really you know, thrown that on my lap in a couple of different capacities. It wasn't something that appealed to me this year in the context of writing this book again because you know I don't want to run what I'm saying past you know some sort of pollster numbers or, or sort of understand how you know a focus group reacts to it. It's hard enough to figure out what you have to say in your own right. and I spent about a good part of the last year and a half figuring that out for myself, and I wanted to finish that process and see it through before you know in, inevitably getting trapped in the machinations of, of a political career. That being said, I think that there's a you know real impact that people can have going into politics. I think it is it is one of the things I've learned is from, from you know friends who have done it, even looking at the possibility of it myself is it's not appealing. It's not, it's a slog. It is not something that you should do for any reason other than really thinking about it as service. And if I ever did go into politics, it wouldn't be for a very long time. It would be with a predefined stint that I was going to get out after I had served and done my part. But but, you know, I've also become convinced, as, as you said earlier, that a big part of the change we need to see is in our culture. And in some, some ways, lawmaking can't fix that. Now, do I think political leaders or at least rare political leaders can be drivers of changing culture? Sure, I think so. I think Ronald Reagan did it in 1980. But I think that there are a lot of ways to drive cultural change that could be within politics. A lot of which come outside of politics, too, and, and I'm keeping you know, my mind totally open to see where I could have the most impact and, and hopefully have some fun personally selfishly along the way doing it, too. Do you see any political leaders out there that are moving in the right direction
1: from, from your judgment?
2: Not that immediately come to mind. I, I'm going to be really honest with you. Um, no, Joe
1: Biden very explicitly endorsed stakeholder capitalism. He thought the idea that, you know, that, that shareholder capitalism was, was, was antiquated. So he's, he's, he, obviously, he's the most successful political leader we have right now. And he's, yeah. he's, he seems he's very explicit
2: and wanting to move in the opposite direction that you're advocating. He's moving the opposite direction that I'm advocating here. I still rooted for his success, Greg, where when he took office, he said he wanted it to unify the country. I took him at his word. And I was rooting for him to succeed because that would have been something that was probably what our country may need now more than anything else. I've been disappointed in that I'm not sure how committed he is or even ever was to that idea. For example, look at the struggle with with driving vaccination in this country. I think the single thing he could have done when taking office was to give credit to the Trump administration. Forget about whether you think it was deserved or not. Forget about whether you think the guy you like the guy or not. If your actual goal was to bring the country together, for example, to end a pandemic where you're dedicating a lot of lip service to vaccination, the greatest way to build trust around that, the greatest way to build solidarity around that would have been to give credit to your predecessor or give credit to someone other than yourself. That's something the great leaders do. And and I'm worried that actually even the president who made his platform, part of his platform to unify the country, has, has really already fallen short of the occasion to do just the opposite of that. And when I think across you know, the full political spectrum, is there anybody who I really see as embodying that ideal? Not right now, if I'm being perfectly honest with you, but I think that if we learn anything from the 1980 version of this, it's gonna be somebody we're not thinking of right now, may not have heard of, may not even, you know, may, may not even be in the front pages of, of, of our newspapers. I hope that that, I'm sure that that person or those people exist. I just hope they step up and, and do what our country needs. Yeah, the political system surely can surprise us all the time. Sure. Um, and political candidates often come out of nowhere
1: and uh, and, and capture the popular imagination. And um, we only have a few minutes left, and I want to move away from your book for the last few minutes and ask, what other books you recommend? I, I, love, I love your book. I, I strongly recommend people go buy it and read it. I think it's a re- it's very readable. These are important issues, uh, but you 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 present them in a very readable way. So I don't think anybody would have trouble getting through it. I don't know, like I said, it's the kind of books I re- write, um, but uh i've read some of yours too by the way so oh, okay <laughs> nice to hear nice to hear you. you're well educated um um uh, but anyway, if you look if you look at um your, your own intellectual development are there sort of books out there saying you hey, i'm really glad i read that i really that was influential to me i remember when I, you know, for example when i was a freshman in college i read mills on liberty which was a very influential in terms of things for yeah me as yeah is there anything that you'd particularly recommend for the readers readers well i i've, I've I've read
2: a lot of uh, some so, so things that influenced my book. I've read a little bit of Ludwig von Mises, you know, somebody who writes about the psychological need created by capitalism itself, or, or Friedrich von Hayek. One, one of the books that I actually want to recommend is actually, let's just go outside the sphere of economics, was actually The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. And it's actually uh, a story from that that I quote in the book that, that I'll sort of tell for the purposes of, of today. But I just think it is, it is one of the books, a lot of, like a lot of what Dostoevsky writes, that, that captures the human experience in, in ways that only literature can. He actually tells a story about Christ that didn't come from the Bible in this chapter entitled The Grand Inquisitor, where Christ comes back to earth in the middle of the Spanish Inquisition in Seville, Spain. And the Grand Inquisitor in the church spots Christ on the street, and he has him arrested. And he puts him in a prison cell. And the iconic dialogue of that chapter is what the Grand Inquisitor says to Christ in that prison cell. And what he says is, we, the church, don't need you anymore. In fact, your being here is an impediment to the mission of the church. And then he sentences Christ to death. Now, in the book, what I talk a little bit about is how that parallels what I call the church of diversity, where in the name of diversity, we've actually sentenced to death true diversity of thought. All the while keeping up the appearance of diversity, so that's kind of how I use that in my book. But there's so many different layers far beyond what I take into 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 woke ink from from that lesson that I, I took away from a lot of what Dostoevsky writes. A couple more recently published books that I think are actually uh, you know n- not bad either are, are Cynical Theories, which I which I discuss in the book. Actually, talks a little bit about a lot of postmodern philosophy on its own terms. Written by two really interesting authors, James Lindsay James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose, who. Uh, at least I gather from recent social media commentary, have been kind enough to read my book as well. But I quote them in my book, and, and I think it was a pretty cool book that came out recently that doesn't focus on the corporate sphere so much, but focuses more on academia. Uh, God Saad's book recently, uh, The Parasitic Mind, I think fits that description as well, and in, in academia. But no one had really done it in corporate America, which is why I, I built on a lot of the ideas that some of these thinkers had had, uh, you know, had, had really developed in spheres of public life that went beyond corporate America, but... I, I applied them to my analysis of corporate America, and then you know went in a different direction altogether. So those are those are a sample of a few things that that stuck with me, uh, you know, off the top of my head. Well, thank
1: you. Those are great recommendations. That's one dusty F. book I have not read, so I will put it on on my list. Uh, Victor Karamaswamy, thank you very much, and congratulations on your on your book.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that.
0: Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. Be sure to check out our Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class on presidential speeches and public opinion, focusing on the 1970s through the 1990s. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts and on the new C-SPAN Now app.